0: TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity. The British Library held a celebration of ideas in the book by David Graeber and David Wengro. They said, The dawn of everything challenges our assumptions about the origins of farming, property, cities, democracy, and slavery and, in doing this, offers a path to imagining new forms of freedom and new ways of organizing society. John Fawcett introduces the speakers.
1: So, it's a great pleasure, of course, to be hosting the event with tonight's speaker, David Wingro, in conversation with Emma Dabiri, and to be remembering and celebrating David Graeber just two and a half short years since he last spoke in this building for us. You may know Emma Dabry for her TV and radio shows, her books, uh, Don't Touch My Hair and What White People Can Do Next, and as a teaching fellow at the African Department at SOAS and a visual sociology PhD researcher at Goldsmiths.
2: Good evening, everyone. Lovely to see you all here. Tonight, I'm very excited to be in conversation with David Wengro, who is a professor of comparative archaeology in the Institute of Archaeology at the University of London, and has been a visiting professor at New York University. He's also the author of three books, including What Makes Civilization, and Wengro conducts, it's feels odd to call you by your surname when you're sitting next to me and David <laughs> <laughs> conducts archaeological field work in various parts of Africa and the Middle East and of course the book is co-authored by David Graeber who was a professor of anthropology at the London School of Economics and uh, the author of many books including Debt, The First 5,000 Years and Bull Jobs, A Theory, an iconic thinker and renowned activist. His early efforts helped to make Occupy Wall Street an era-defining movement and he died on the 2nd of September 2020. So I will yeah, hand over to you now, David.
1: Thank you. David uh, David Graber warned me that all this would happen but he, he didn't warn me that he wouldn't actually be around uh, when it did. Um, after a period of what seemed to be quite a mild uh, illness, David died. Very suddenly, about three weeks uh, after we finished writing this book together. And it had uh, absorbed us on and off uh, for over 10 years. He was a person who opened horizons. We will change the course of history, he said, starting with the past. Um, He wasn't just a a brilliant anthropologist and researcher. David really tried to live his social science. David's role in the global justice movement is very well known. And at least the way I see it, uh, it really all centred around a simple problem. Is this really the only way for us to live and organise ourselves as a species? Or are other worlds still possible? And one obvious way to address that question is just to start looking at all the different kinds of societies that human beings have built, not just over the last few hundreds of years, but over many thousands of years of history that David's field of anthropology, my field of archaeology, uh, lay the evidence before us. But we quickly realized that when scholars have come to do this, when they come to address the the broad sweep of history, if you like. What they tend to present is almost exactly the opposite. It's almost the opposite. It's kind of a teleological story of how the present uh, was kind of inevitable. How we moved, how humanity moved from one cage to another, sort of little cages in prehistoric times to bigger and bigger institutional cages uh, as, as we move on. You pick up a modern treatise on human history and you'll probably find some version of a kind of of coming-of-age story, how humankind spent most of its time in a state of childlike innocence until our departure on some voyage of discovery that would guarantee our cultural development, but also the loss of basic human freedoms. This conventional wisdom tells us that we originated in tiny egalitarian bands of hunter-gatherers and then somehow fell from grace into a, a state of inequality we could live in societies of equals when we were few and our lives and material needs were simple small in this story means egalitarian big means complex but also hierarchical and if there are eight billion people on the planet, uh, it's pretty clear what the general message is. Uh, We're sort of destined to reproduce the kind of radical inequalities of our present system. So it seemed to us that the overriding message of these other big history books is that you uh, ought to feel small. What they tell us is that Aside from all the other kinds of obstacles to change, everything from everyday racism to gender inequalities or warfare, state violence, crony capitalism, in addition to all those things, history and social evolution uh, are also not with you. Uh, they're, not, uh, they're not with change. Fortunately, uh, as David and I discovered, uh, none of this is actually true. Using the latest evidence from our fields, uh, what we show in the book is that this familiar story is in almost every respect a myth, albeit a very tenacious myth which for more than 200 years has captured uh, the imaginations and exercised a a powerful hold over scholars, people fully equipped with academic uh, credentials, and through their writings and research has kept its hold over the imaginations of a much wider public constituency. Uh, I'm going to stop, but I I can't still really conceive of The Dawn of Everything coming out uh, without David uh, Graeber. He he was so looking forward to it and had actually already started work on a sequel, uh, which was going to be one of three, he insisted. He had a a lot of energy. Um, But I'll I'll just end with something that he wrote. Uh, He said, for a very long time, the intellectual consensus has been that we can no longer ask great questions. But increasingly, he said, it's looking like we have no other choice. So, I thought I'd finish there and ask some questions. Thank you.
2: So, a central theme of the the work is refuting this idea that civilization and complexity always come at the price of human
1: freedom. Mm. Could we talk a little bit about Mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've just summed up the entire book. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, That's right, um, but it's not abstract freedoms. I mean, Mm -hmm. one of the peculiar things about, I think, our whole kind of Western Enlightenment-based tradition is that we talk about freedom in this very abstract way. You know, man was born free, um, but everywhere we find him in chains. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the other half of the population were doing, but... That's what happened to man, uh, according to Rousseau. Um, but you know, what would someone like Rousseau have known about freedom or equality? Um, you know, I mean one of David's jokes was that somebody living in um, 18th-century France, in Rousseau's kind of social circle, the closest he probably ever got to a society of equals was somebody giving out equal-sized pieces of cake at a, at a dinner party or something. That's in the book, um, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. probably. Um, but the point <laughs> right. is that, um, you know, this is all in their imagination. So when mm-hmm. he describes humanity in a state of freedom and inequality, it's just kind of bizarre if you mm-hmm. read his famous discourse from... 1754, the, the second discourse on the origins of uh, social inequality, he describes you know, the original condition of humanity as this almost sort of animal-like creature living in isolation, roaming through the forest, unable to project himself into the future or the past, just kind of living in this weird eternal present, but blissfully happy, of course. Um, and then as human beings begin um, actually cooperating, grow crops or... Metallurgy, or eventually live in cities, they progressively lose uh, freedom. Mm-hmm. But what kind of freedom? You know, it's never specified. Mm-hmm. What are we actually talking about? As it turns out, a lot of his ideas about freedom and many other writers uh, of that time were inspired by other societies, societies that European, particularly French, colonists encountered uh, on the other side of the ocean. Uh, in the Americas, who did actually know and practised uh, living in a society where you're not trained into obedience the way that we all are, and did actually have a very concrete idea of what that means in terms of how one raises children and how, how to organise a political debate. And uh, stories of these societies found their way back to Europe through missionary relations, travelers' accounts, and around the time that Rousseau was writing, they were having an extraordinary impact uh, on European culture. Uh, they were being read uh, in every Enlightenment salon. There were plays based on some of these you know, dialogues with indigenous intellectuals, mm-hmm. or savages, as they like to call them. Uh, why savage? Which spread like wildfire. These books became bestsellers. Mm-hmm. There was a play called uh, the, Uh, Harlequin Sauvage, which ran for longer than cats, you know, (laughs) Les Misérables or something. Um, People loved this stuff, and um, some people were getting very excited about the possibilities. And they talked about women's rights, Mm -hmm. all these things that were still taboo in very hierarchical Europe of the the Ancien Régime. So I think the first thing that we have to do is actually define what we mean by freedoms mm-hmm. in a concrete sense, not mm-hmm. in a sort of abstract theoretical sense, which we, we try to do in the book and then explain how, um, you know, yes, uh, a lot of those freedoms have been lost or compromised in severe ways, but not by the things that we're always told mm-hmm. are the problem. Uh, it wasn't the origins of farming. For example, that's a biggie. Mm -hmm. That's where we're supposed to lose all of those primordial uh, freedoms and begin this descent into inequality. No, that's not true. There's no evidence for that. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not uh, populations growing and people moving into cities. No, that doesn't necessarily lead to radical inequality. Actually, something that archaeologists have found out in the last 20 or 30 years is, first of all, that there are just a lot more cities in the ancient world than we realised. Many of them are much earlier than the first evidence for kingdoms or states or empires or even writing systems. And some of them, actually a surprising number of them, were organised on what seemed to be very robustly egalitarian lines. Mm -hmm. So this whole idea that, you know, merely scaling up the, uh, the number of people, or the density of people, obliges you to give up freedoms and set up, uh, you know, managerial uh, uh, centres and top-down government as uh, wrong. Um, so all, all the things that we think were kind of crucial thresholds turn out really not to be, in light of the, uh, the latest uh, evidence. Mm-hmm. We think of a civilization. Uh, that's not the reason, you know, if we've lost some of those basic freedoms it's, it's because of other, other things, other factors.
2: Yeah, some, like there's so much in the book that I just found so e- exciting, you know, to be presented to me. But I think um, initially, like I was like whooping and underlining um, with a pencil because people that use pen on books are monsters, but that's another <laughs> conversation. Um, but um, this proposal or this, this the evidence that, um, you know, so many of the fa- the ideas of the Enlightenment that are seen as uniquely European Mm. about freedom and liberty and um, equality have their origins in these um, indigenous American intellectual traditions. That's incredible.
1: Yeah, but it shouldn't be. I mean, it shouldn't be surprising because Mm -hmm. that's what the Enlightenment writers said they would do. They said, we got it from there. But there's a number of factors that have just led to this whole... um, kind of dialogue, this whole process of borrowing and exchange of ideas, it's been kind of written out. And I think it relates to a point that, that you've made, I think, in some of your writing uh, about racism. So it takes two forms, or it at least two different forms, which seem like almost opposites. You can treat people as inherently inferior. Mm-hmm. So well, there's no way these you know, savage, primitive people could possibly have influence something as weighty and significant as the European Enlightenment, that's one kind of prejudice. But there's also the kind of prejudice that says, well, these other people are just amazing, you know, they're wonderful, everything they do is sort of angelic and magnificent. (laughs) Um, And then you end up with, uh, you know, the accusation that if you say Europeans borrowed anything from indigenous societies, you must be romanticizing you know you must be engaging in noble savage sort of tropes Mm -hmm. and um, that's obviously you know ridiculous as well so either way you end up in a situation where western thought is presented as this kind of completely bounded and sealed thing that's sort of impenetrable which is just kind of unlikely inherently Mm -hmm. unlikely you know so in the book uh, we draw on uh, a body of scholarship which has been around for quite a while and has been largely uh, ignored in academic circles. Some of it is by American and Canadian researchers who are themselves of indigenous descent. And they went back to some of these colonial uh, records and archives and, and um, literary uh, works. And you can actually identify some of the people. I mean, we even know the names of some of the individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, who were involved in these debates and discussions. And we have lots of corroborating accounts of uh, one person in particular, who in the 17th century was a very eminent and senior statesman of the uh, the Wendat nation. He went by many names, um, one of which was Mm Kandirog. The French, for reasons we don't really understand, called him the Rat. Um, But we have lots of different accounts from different people which testify He was was a famous warrior, he was a diplomat, he was one of the signatories of the great peace of Montreal in 1701. But he was also apparently just the most brilliant intellect, incredible orator. Mm -hmm. And um, the then governor of the French colonies there, a guy called Frontignac, also fancied himself as a bit of a debater. And he would invite Candiranc to what uh, I guess were kind of like enlightenment salons before the enlightenment. Mm somewhere around Montreal, in the French fort there, they would have these debates and people witnessed them. um, And they were debating all of the things that then become major themes of, guess what? The enlightenment, Mm -hmm. you know, it's all about freedom, equality, you know, why do we need money, uh, sexual habits, women's rights. um, And uh, these things were documented. and uh, written down by, including French colonists who learnt native languages, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, yeah, I've forgotten what the question was. I've forgotten forgot as well, we, yeah. but
2: I'm, what you said was yeah, fascinating. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's it, there's there's a point in the book where you talk about the fact that we tend to see ourselves in those. Um, European colonialists more so than we would the indigenous Americans. But oh, yeah. actually we'd recognise right. a lot of the ideas from the indigenous Americans as our own more than we would those, those colonialists who had no kind of, who had little concept of freedom in the way that we do it's today. It's
1: very challenging material because you know you're, you're talking about Europeans, yeah, but you're talking about 17th century Europeans talking about Jesuits, Mm -hmm. these people had very different notions of what a good society was. I mean, the Jesuits were infuriated by what they found, particularly among uh, Iroquoian and Algonquin-speaking nations around what's today the Great Lakes region of Canada, Mm -hmm. because uh, they simply wouldn't obey commands. You know, it's a completely alien idea. I mean, they had chiefs and things, but a chief... um, they could give commands, but nobody was actually obliged to obey them. If you mm-hmm. wanted someone to do something, you had to actually persuade them. It's part of you know the whole principle of having a highly developed tradition of oratory and debate and political engagement. Mm-hmm. But for the Jesuits, this was hopeless because you know they're trying to convert them to Christianity. So you know how do you teach the the Ten Commandments that people who just won't <laughs> obey commands? <laughs> um,
2: yeah, the the idea that um you know somebody like uh, pinker is saying that peace mm. and who, who you reference in the book that peace and security are the logical outcome Of living in sovereign states is completely Mm. like refuted in this book where you show cultures that organize very differently to sovereign states and they are far more um you know they have a lot more cohesion or one of the things that you spoke about was the absence of kind of prisons or um that type of punitive um system of punishment in these societies and the the people of those societies, their kind of horror at, mm. or just their recognition of the inadequacy of prisons. Um, could mm. you talk a little bit about the different approaches to um, just justice or it's, social yeah, cohesion?
1: It's, it's interesting. And um, again, it was noted by a lot of French observers who were, you know, they, they weren't really into this stuff. I mean, they found it pretty threatening, mm-hmm. uh, which is partly why I think, you know, you can treat these sources as quite reliable because they're actually complaining how is it that these people who live here actually have much lower crime rates than we do back home? But They don't have prisons, they don't have judges. Um, actually, what they would do uh, if somebody was, was a, a felon and uh, you know, committed a murder or any other sort of crime is quite similar to what happened in certain parts of medieval Europe where you wouldn't punish the individual, you would hold the whole extended kinship group, the whole extended family or the whole clan would be responsible and would have to pay compensation to the aggrieved victim. And there are descriptions of people actually competing to outdo each other. You know, how much can we say sorry? And if you think about it, you know, this is what keeps people in line. I mean, people are in charge of their own children, their own families in that sense, uh, govern themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that seems to have been... Um, how things worked. And you also get a very clear picture from that, that these were not egalitarian societies in the way that we tend to think about material equality. It's clear that some people have got a lot more stuff to give away Mm -hmm. than other people. Um, So inequality is not really the point. What seems to be more the point of difference between Europeans and let's say, uh, uh, members of the Kandirang society, is that in their society, there's no obvious way to turn that wealth into power over other people. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: It's just something we take for granted. You've got more stuff, you've got more money, you've got a bigger house that somehow entitles you to boss people around or get them to work for you. And um, this just seems to have been quite an alien idea to them. And therefore, you know, they weren't egalitarian in that sense because it just didn't seem to matter quite so much, you know, how much stuff everyone has. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it is challenging material, and as you say, you know, you read these accounts, and actually, quite often, it's it's what the American, indigenous American point of view, is probably what you or I uh, would be arguing. Whereas it's the Europeans who are going, no, it's very, very important that we have revealed faith and monarchy, mm-hmm. lots of monarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you really must, you know, defer to people all the time. And if somebody outranks you, very important that you do what they say. Um, but some of it is, you know, it's, it's kind of indefensible. So um, um, there was a certain amount of shock um, at the fact that uh, Europeans just, didn't seem to help each other very much. You know, you'd let somebody fall into destitution. So you go to a, a, a French colonial town or actually um, many indigenous people visited Europe as part of delegations. It's quite likely that Kandiranc himself was in Paris um, at some stage and were just shocked at the levels of poverty and the fact that people would do this to their own people. Mm-hmm. The Cities sort of littered with homeless people.
2: You know, material wealth, often the fact that it wasn't inherited as well was, mm. was, was really interesting. But also, speaking of this I- exchange of ideas and movements of people exchanging both objects and ideas with each other, going far further back than um, mm. we are told according to the familiar narrative.
1: That's right. This is, actually is one of the things that I think. Um, excited, David, most uh, Mm -hmm. about archaeology is um, this whole business, exactly what you described, because what we know from archaeology is that human history really isn't the way I think most people intuitively tend to imagine it, where you're supposed to begin with little, you know, isolated groups of human beings and then gradually you get the invention of wheel transport and the sail and Digital technology, globalizing, you know, we're all supposed to be becoming more and more connected. Mm-hmm. Whereas, actually, if you look at the evidence, it kind of goes in the other direction. So, human history starts out with um, what archaeologists used to call culture areas. Now they give them more scientific sounding names, but basically these great coalitions <coughs> of societies that span continents and seem to be based on sharing cultural habits forms of hospitality, forms of technology, forms of ritual, and they're enormous. And what you actually see is a process where, as population numbers grow, people's social worlds become smaller. They actually get more contracted, Mm -hmm. and eventually you end up with us living in these very bounded, kind of siloed um, units, um, of which nation-states are the most recent example. So it's actually kind of a strange sort of process of, uh, of, of shrinkage. Um, and with cities, it's the same, you know, before cities, again, you don't have these little fragmented pockets, you have these great regional uh, cultural confederacies that mm-hmm. kind of, you know, a city is like one of those things suddenly shrunk into one spot. Yeah. So it goes against this idea that, um, you know, there must have been some terrible psychological shock about living in cities because we've got these hunter-gatherer brains and we're supposed to just work in small teams and small groups. Um, so living in cities must have been terribly challenging. We must immediately invent bureaucracy and police and you know, all these kind of kings. And yeah, yeah. Not really the case because people were already living in these greatly extended communities. Half of the time in their imaginations, much as we imagine ourselves to have something in common with everyone who lives in England, it's like, you know, read the same newspapers or whatever, Um, but we're not actually going to meet all of them. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, the rejection of that foundational idea of, you know, kind of hunter-gatherers to agriculture, Mm. to cities and industry and technology is something that, again, you reject in the book. So Mm. that's that's, that's pretty radical, you know, to to reject that. How do you think that's going to be?
1: So the idea that you sometimes get that we kind of stumbled into agriculture, I think, I can't remember who it was, because it's the worst mistake in history. You know, started planting crops. Everything went wrong. We had to invent private property and became very territorial. Or you get that story that people love about, oh, we didn't domesticate the wheat. You know, the wheat domesticated us. (laughs) (laughs) It's grass. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm I'm not really worried about the plausibility of Yeah, 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 yeah. It's kind of crazy that people ever accepted the other...
0: That was part of a celebration of the launch of the book, The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity, at the British Library, recorded on Tuesday, October 19, 2021. Emma Darbury was in conversation with David wengo He co-authored the book with the late David Graeber. Emma Darbury teaches in the African Department at SOAS, London University. My thanks for permission to broadcast. Go to the British Library. The full one-hour and 17-minute film is posted on their YouTube channel under The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. My name is Maria Gelauden. Thank you for listening.